Good morning. I'm Daniel Glick. And I'm Shelley Schlender. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, July 26, 2016. Coming up, Shelley and I talk about wearing two hats, science and journalism, and share what we've learned about fracking. begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. When people in America get a sugar craving, they're likely to head for an ice cream shop. In the wilds of Mozambique, honey hunters are likely to call for help from a small brown bird called the honey guide. Honey guide birds love to eat beeswax, but they don't like to get stung. Somewhere back in time, these clever birds figured out that it's easier to get the beeswax if they first guide humans who love honey to the beehive to deal with the honey bees. Also, somewhere back in time, the human honey hunters learned that if they give a special trilling call, the honeybirds would fly out to find a beehive and guide them to it. To find out more about this unique cooperative behavior, a team of researchers from South Africa and Cambridge walked with honey hunters while playing a variety of re recorded sounds. With random sounds, the honey guide birds only led the group to a beehive 33% of the time. When researchers played the special trilling call of the honey bee hunters, success doubled. The birds led them to a beehive 66% of the time. And incidentally, there's another side to this. Sometimes when those honey bee birds are hunt hungry, they will go to the honey hunters and make a call that says, guess what, I found a beehive. All of these results of this sweet cooperative success were published last week in the journal Science. Teacher, what's the difference between weather and climate? How do scientists know what the, that the world is getting warmer and that people are contributing to it? For many school teachers, the complexities of climate change science can be difficult to understand and even more difficult to communicate with their students. So, scientists are increasingly trying to help. Earlier this month, Boulder's National Center for Atmospheric Research, or NCAR, held a climate change workshop to teach the teachers and other communicators about climate science. At the event, K-12 teachers and filmmakers learned from scientists how to better communicate the nuances and complexity of climate change impacts and make it fun and interactive for students. Natalia Bayona has more. Put them on the arrow headed towards the Earth's surface. It's a lesson about climate models. Yeah, we're still beginning. So now and we're at this. Area. But the audience is far from weary. You guys are such followers. Uh. Leading the group is Randy Russell. He's a science educator at the University Corporation for Atmospheric Research, known as UCAR. He's walking the group through a board game to show how climate models use physics to track global warming. Now, is the sun always on? No. 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 So let's do a time step where it's nighttime. You could also model this with other planets. If you, had, if you played this game first for weather and climate. For Venus and for Mars. Interactive games like this one were highlighted at this year's workshop as ways to give educators a leg up when translating complex climate research. 
another game called Resilientville asked players to take on the role of community leaders in responding to natural disasters. As you all are aware, 48 hours ago, our city was struck by a massive flood. It will be at least 72 hours before response services will be here in District 6. That's Todd Rhodes. He's a graduate student visiting NCARD this summer to study atmospheric modeling. We need to first provide shelter and care for 200 families with children and seniors for an indefinite period of time. We need to provide mental health and spiritual services as needed for the communities. We're going to start with the first problem and solve just each problem at a time. Hey, the church, we, we, we've, got a, we've got to fill your space. I don't know how many you can take, but we're going to need it. And the school, we're going to need at least the gym. We're probably going to need your classrooms for the health clinic. We have power, and we are willing to um, give space and resources that we have to help the community. Um, we have the gym, and we have the cafeteria. Outreach groups and earthquake-prone San Francisco created Resilientville to market the concept of self-sufficiency. If we can take the motivation that people have in games, being able to die over and over and over again and still keep trying and enjoy it and incorporate that into reality, then somehow by sort of bridging the gap between game and reality, then we can have people who feel like they can actually make a difference in the world like they do in their game world. Teachers resonated well with the theory of gaming. Some came to the workshop burdened by the complex and often doom and gloom climate data, but left with a new sense of confidence. Conservation biologist and teacher Lauren Riegler says her biggest takeaway was seeing the potential gaming has in engaging youth. While this is a global, a really complex and maybe even overwhelming kind of issue that you can teach us to students of all sorts of ages. And not only can you help them learn about this issue, but that they can have fun while doing it and they can even feel empowered while doing it. For How on Earth, I'm Natalia Bayona. Thanks to Natalia for that story. On the science calendar this week, First, this Thursday at 7 p.m., CU Boulder's Fisk Planetarium will give an update of NASA's Juno mission, presented by Professor Fran Baganal. Earlier this month, the Juno spacecraft ran the gauntlet of Jupiter's ferocious radiation belts, and on the 4th of July, it entered the polar orbit around the giant gas planet. From this unique perspective, Juno's instruments are poised to map out Juniper's interior structure, atmospheric dynamics, and intense aurora. Thursday's talk will discuss the Juno spacecraft, the science questions to be addressed, and the hazards involved. That's 7 p.m. this Thursday at Fisk Planetarium. For more information, go to their website at fisk.colorado.edu. Then, this Friday, at Boulder's beautiful E-Town Hall, the folks behind the Story Collider podcast are partnering with the BioFrontiers Institute at CU Boulder for a special edition of its science storytelling show. Five scientists from CU will take the stage to share true, personal stories about how science has affected their lives. The live show will be at E-Town Hall, 1535 Spruce Street in Boulder, this Friday, July 29th. Doors open at 6 p.m. and stories begin at 7 p.m. For more information, go to www.etown.org.
are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Daniel Glick. And I'm Shelley Schlender. Hydraulic fracturing, or fracking, is a highly controversial industrial process used to extract underground methane, which is a growing source of electricity production in this country. In Colorado, a boom in methane development over the past few years has raised questions about whether the environmental impacts are outpacing scientists' ability to measure them. This fracking boom has prompted many cities in Colorado to pass local laws that restrict new energy development, especially near schools and homes. But last May, the Colorado Supreme Court ruled that those local laws are invalid. In response, citizen groups have become increasingly active, launching several fracking-related ballot initiatives. Supporters of two of those initiatives, 75 and 78, have until August 8th to present signatures for validation. Whatever the fate of the initiatives, scientists, citizens are increasingly raising an important question that scientists are struggling to answer. How safe is fracking in residential areas? In fact, how safe is any oil and gas operation when it's close to homes? Shelley and I have been speaking to a number of scientists about the challenges of studying the impacts of this accelerated energy development. And as part of that, um, we have had planned some scientists who could be here to um, join our discussion, but they were unavoidably detained. So, Dan, I'm going to use you as my expert, and you can use me as your expert to look at this issue. Who are some of the scientists that you've been talking with? Well, uh, there's a lot of studies that are out right now, and they cover the gamut from public health impacts to air quality impacts. And I think we could probably start this by breaking it down into some of the challenges that scientists have. First of all, this is a relatively new phenomenon, the accelerated growth here, especially in the Front Range. Well, that's correct. There was a time in Boulder County uh, around the turn of the other century and later, and I think even into the 50s and maybe the 60s, when there were oil wells all over Boulder County. It was a valley that was full of those old-fashioned kind of oil wells that look a little bit like a sleepy donkey going up and down. The derricks. The derricks. And in those days, people were just glad to have the oil production nearby. We've learned a lot since then. In those days, they did not know about endocrine disruptors. They did not know about climate change. And now there's a different feeling when oil wells show up. Well, I think it's also the um, this collision between industrial development and residential development that really has put a, a finger on this, some of the issues that are being raised. I think many people are concerned that this industrial activity, which is what it is, I think a lot of people think that fracking per se is the, is the problem. I don't think fracking per se is the problem. It's that there's this mass of tens and tens and tens of thousands of wells that are being drilled. Now, you just gave an editorial opinion that some people would dispute. You said that you don't think fracking itself is the problem. And that's a very interesting concept because more and more there's an awareness that's rising that oil and gas development of any kind can be dirty if there are mistakes made in how something is done or it isn't being reviewed. So it, it may not just be fracking. It may just be that oil and gas can have leaks, it can have noise, it can have all kinds of things that people don't realize are happening unless they're close to it. Well, let's, we can break that down a little bit. Um, the uh, process of extracting methane from underground, whether you do it in a directional drill or a horizontal drill, or whether you use this powerful force of fracking, which is injection of a combination of sand and water and chemicals into the deep substrata, 
that breaks up the subshale, and that creates a number of problems. First of all, there's water that goes into that and water that comes out of that. There's air uh, quality problems from both the methane and the volatile organic compounds, or VOCs. All right, so Dan Glick, I hear you saying, as a journalist who's talked with scientists, that you are under the impression that oil and gas development is one thing, but fracking opens up a lot or cracks open a lot more ways that things can pollute, is your well, impression. Absolutely, that, that the acceleration of the use of fracking in getting deep, deep underground methane has accelerated dramatically over the last decade or so, and it keeps accelerating. And I think what scientists are scrambling to figure out is how do you measure these impacts? Uh, so let's take public health, for example. It's hard to measure the long-term impacts of something that's only been happening a short time. It's hard to measure for all kinds of reasons, Denglick, because the kinds of chemicals that are released during this process are not on the EPA list of chemicals to watch out for. There's very few of these chemicals that actually have measurable limits that are officially not safe at a certain level. There are other groups that measure chemicals that do say that some are not safe at certain levels, but a lot of these chemicals are kind of new, kind of strange chemicals that maybe they're okay and maybe they're endocrine disruptors, as we've seen with so many other chemicals that come from industrial practices. Right, and in addition to that, Shelley, we also have what it, what are known to be problems or uh, other uh, volatile organic compounds. So Gabby Patron is a scientist at, at NOAA who's been studying that. She published quite recently about the amount of benzene, for example, that has been released during the process of extracting natural, natural gas from deep underground wells. So benzene and what they call BTEX chemicals are part of the process, and frankly, People don't know exactly what those levels are and what the safe levels are for people living 500 feet or 1,000 feet or 2,500 feet from these uh, industrial uh, production facilities. Well, that's right. And, in fact, the closeness or the distance from a well sometimes doesn't make as much difference as how the well is operated or how inadvertently a well can um, the operations to make the fracking happen can disrupt the geology in the area so that something leaks somewhere else. It's, it's quite a complex picture. Some oil and gas developers have described it to me as actually rocket science. To run an oil and gas operation takes a lot of skill. It's easy not to do it right. Well, and that, that gets into not less a scientific issue as an economic issue because some of these operators, in fact, will say to you, we are the best regulated uh, industry in the, in the, in the country in, here in Colorado. Of course, people who are out there measuring say, well, they're maybe doing better than others, but they're maybe not doing uh, well enough. That's a very good point, too, Dan Click, in that the studies and all of our listeners who are experts on fracking at this point, we have such great expertise in our audience and in our activists in the community about these issues of oil and gas development. It's very interesting that Colorado actually has some of the best statistics for cleaner, I'm not saying clean, but cleaner oil and gas development compared to places like Wyoming 
where there just are not as many activists. So it, there's a possibility that the activism, the close look of being in a residential area is raising some questions that nobody had realized needed to be raised. Well, that's true. But the, the, the essential problem, I think, for many people who are trying to study this is uh, two, two problems that I think science grapples with. One is correlation and causation. And another is that they will always tell you anecdotes are not data. But what we're having now is a number of, of anecdotes about people having, for example, Chris Clack, who was going to come on the show today. He lived in Decono, and he said he and his wife moved because they were getting headaches. And as context, Christopher Clack is a tremendous statistician who works on atmospheric issues for the National Cent uh, for NCAR. Series. And Series. He, he, that's right. He works for Series, but he works on a project that has involved NCAR also, where he has looked at the possibility of the U.S. becoming a renewable energy nation in by the year 2030 by going a different route, by putting in more solar, by putting in more wind power, um, and using oil and gas as a bridge fuel. So even in his equations, he's represented that by 2030, what would that date be? 20, 15 years from yes, now. Yes, yeah. right. Yeah. So 15 years from now, that um, we would be mainly running the United States, 80% of the energy coming from renewables, but about 20% would need to be kind of a transition just in case fuel. And his report recommended oil and gas. Well, that's true. And one of the one of the issues about natural gas is that people have been talking about the fugitive methane. That is the methane that escapes uh, during the process of drilling and extracting it. And that if there's more than about 4% of fugitive methane, then the advantage that natural gas has purely as a fuel... BTUs providing fuel is is diminished greatly, and that coal is almost this uh, as as good, if you want to call it, from a climate standpoint, or as bad, or could, as bad. You could say it because generally it's recognized that coal is a very dirty fuel, and the concern is that if an oil and gas operation leaks, whether it's at the drilling place or in the pipes that go to the processing plant or in the processing plant itself, then it gets to be as bad as coal if it leaks. And I think that's your your comment about the bridge fuel is one that many scientists uh, would probably take some exception to. It it is a bridge from a fossil fuel to a fossil fuel. And many people have pointed out that if we continue down the path of making more and more development and getting more and more methane out of the ground, then we are delaying the opportunity to switch, as Christopher Clack would show, that we do need to make this transition to a less carbon-intensive energy grid. Dan Glick, you've been talking recently to Chris Clack, the scientist at NCAR who has made this tremendous study about how quickly the United States could become a renewable energy nation if only as a nation we moved forward on that idea. Is he still thinking that this oil and gas could be a quote-unquote bridge fuel or is he thinking differently having lived around fracking and having lived around activists who are saying hold on a second what's happening to our health and environment given the leaks and the problems we're seeing well i, I wouldn't want to speak for chris about whether he thinks that it is or isn't what i i gathered from my conversation with him is that he believes if we don't accelerate this process of making this transition in a very concerted way then we'll never get there and he has experience personal effects, uh, health effects that he attributes to, again, 
causation, correlation, hard to know. He believes very strongly that there are health impacts, and he's been diving into some of the science. And there is a substantial amount of science, not just here in Colorado, but from around the country that and around the world. I mean, many places, New York State among them, and, and many countries in Europe are banning fracking entirely because they believe that the cumulative evidence is that this is something that has a number of negative impacts on air quality, on water quality, on people's health. We'll be doing some more reports about some of the studies that are coming out to look at this in upcoming shows. Uh, For instance, Colorado State University has done an extensive number of new studies about fracking and what kind of pollution comes from it from two levels. One is to look at what happens at the well pad, meaning what is happening specifically with certain wells and their operation. Perhaps to look at how that kind of operation could tighten up the bolts and be cleaner. And they're also doing some comparative studies to look at how does fracking compare to other operations. Um, Many of the activists listening will be well aware that there are a lot of studies looking at this. They're not always looking in the same direction, but there's more data being gathered. And I think the the, the point that many people who are opposing uh, increasing development are making is, is that this kind of industrial development doesn't belong in residential developments. Anybody who's driven the I-25 corridor uh, in, and looks off to the east and sees the number of new home developments and the number of new wellheads going in has to think this is a collision that's happening between this industrial development and this residential development. How ironic, though, because those oil and gas developers probably had the rights, the property rights, to develop that area before the residential properties got built. And that raises a very interesting question about whether or not the people who are developing those residential properties knew what was coming when they put up four or five hundred or a thousand homes right in the middle of uh, the DJ Basin, as they call it. Yes, so there's lots of questions about this. We will plan to have a call-in show to address these issues sometime in the future. Um, in the meantime, as, as oil and gas is a bridge fuel, one of the things that the oil and gas operators are saying they're trying to do is to tighten up the bolts and find places that there are leaks so that there would be less of them. There is this thing called a pig a smart pig, which is a, you've heard of this too, I'm sure Dan Glick and many of our listeners have. It's a small device that has all kinds of sensors in it that can be put into a pipe to see whether there's corrosion, to see if there's leaks. There are cameras that can look at spectronomer readings of the kinds of chemicals coming out of an oil and gas operation. And all of these things are possible. The question is, are they being done enough We know that there aren't enough inspectors to do this from the state level. Um, So are they being done enough? Well, again, uh, getting back to some of the work done by NOAA, uh, when they do do flyovers, they use infrared cameras, for example, that can detect these leaks, and they can detect uh, not just methane leaks, but some of the signatures of some of the other volatile organic compounds. And they're finding that there are many, many more times Uh, this amount of, uh, for example, benzene that's coming out of these wells than the regulators have anticipated. And so in in many cases, the regulators aren't aren't measuring. They're basically guessing. 
It sounds like they're guessing. That's correct. And that's a problem. It's a question uh, we shouldn't talk policy, but it does seem rather puzzling that there are so few regulators with so many wells in residential areas, which is why there are bucket brigades who go out as activists and measure the wells themselves and try to see what's happening from a citizen science perspective. Yes, and and again, the scientists would love to get out there and get better data, and in many cases, it's the typical problem. It's expensive, and it takes a lot of time, and there's a limited amount of resources to do science. Limited amount of resources to do science, and yet we're in this period where if we stopped oil and gas tomorrow, could we function? Well, I don't think anybody's planning on stopping it tomorrow. Uh, I think the the... the the big thinkers like Chris Clack would say, we got to start down this road now. Ten, 10 years ago. And, yes. and absent 10 years ago, we should get down it now and, and in, in a great haste and with a concerted effort. But that concerted effort is not happening. The, the proposal that NCAR put together to have a renewable energy nation by the year 2000, by, by, by in 15, 15. years, uh, is just not happening yet. No, it's not. And, and we've n- and not really had time to look into the climate change of, uh, impacts of this development as well. But clearly, with the Paris Accords and all the awareness, the growing awareness around the world, that uh, we're on a collision course with uh, some really desperate times if we don't make a very quick uh, transition. You spoke for a moment of, about the signature of oil and gas operations and the signature of pollution, but you also spoke earlier about signatures needed for a ballot initiative. Can you say what that is again? Well, there are two ballot initiatives that are um, uh, going uh, to be on the November ballot if they gather enough signatures. One is 75 and one is 78. One uh, uh, institutes setbacks of 2,500 feet from any well site, between a well site and uh, residential development in hospitals and water sources. The industry is vociferously objected to that. They think it's going to shut down their operations in the state. And 75 tries to institute the local control that many um, uh, municipalities, including Boulder County, passed to either put moratoria on, on new development until we know more about it, or else to be able to give municipalities more control over where and how this development happens. Those are some different ways that citizens can become involved is by looking at more studies, by being activists, by putting signatures on ballots for or against. It's up to you. Thank you for joining us, uh, Dan Glick, as host and also for this conversation here on How on Earth. And again, we will try to get Chris Clack on the show again or invite him to be part of a call-in show so that you can give us your questions directly to Chris Clack in a longer format. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. This week's show was produced by Joel Parker and was engineered by Shelley Schlender. Additional contributions by Natalia Bayona and Beth Bennett. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Sandra Wong. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes and extended interviews. You can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Shelley Schlender. And I'm Daniel Glick.